mom. Well, good morning, church, and welcome to week three of a series that we've been calling Unleashed. And if this is your first week here, or, or maybe you've missed the last couple weeks, um, this series really, it's based on a word that God gave us back in March of, of this year, that where God told us that there are people in our church and in our community who have so much gifting, so much talent, so much purpose. There are people who God has equipped with so much to do incredible things, but that these people are stuck. That there are things in our lives that maybe we know of, maybe we don't. Things, though, that are holding us back from everything that God has for us. And, and he told us that you have so much purpose. He has such incredible plans for your life. But often the disconnect in our lives is between what he's called us to and equipped us for and what we feel we can do. And, and so through this series, it really is our hope that God will set some people free. This whole series is about freedom, about being unleashed, unleashed from the things in your past that are holding you back, unleashed from the, the addictions and the pain that you've experienced, unleashed from uh, unforgiveness and the shame, unleashed from the, the, the hurt, unleashed from all of the things, the fears and the lies you've believed that are holding you back from what God has called you to do. And, and so far through this series, we've been exploring some of the promises that, that we need to believe in order to truly live unleashed. And, and in a couple weeks, we're going to dive into some of the problems that we need to address. Those are going to be really fun because we're going to start digging deeper before we close off the series looking at some of the practices we need to start to institute in our lives. But over the past two weeks, we, we've been focusing on two of four promises that we believe are key for us to receive and to know and acknowledge and believe in our hearts in order to truly live unleashed. And we've talked about so far the promise of you are loved and the promise last week of you are not alone. And if those two promises resound with you, maybe you struggle with those, check out those messages. They're all online, everywhere. Um, but this week, I want to dive into promise number three. The third promise that God gives us that we can hold to as we pursue God and, and follow God and, and seek to live unleashed in everything God has for us, and that is the promise You will always have enough. You will always have enough, which is to say that God will not lead you someplace only to abandon there, you there and let you fail and wash up. But when you are following God, he will provide you with everything you need. He will provide you with the resources you need in order to succeed. It doesn't matter if you feel not good enough, if you feel inadequate, if you feel deficient, if others have told you that you're not good enough. None of that matters because you will always have enough. 
Now, if I'm honest with you this morning, this promise is, out of the three that we've talked about so far, this promise is the one that I struggle with the most. No, the whole idea of you are love, that's just, I, I, I get it. I know, I believe it. I find that easy to believe. God is always with me. I find that easy to believe. But, but in moments of struggle, I find that this promise, you will always have enough, is, is difficult, especially when I don't think I have enough. Like, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe I'm just weird and you guys are all perfect Christians. That's okay if you are. Um, but, but I know in moments when money seems tight, or in moments when a problem arises and I don't know how to solve it, or, you know, in moments where God gives me a promise and he says, this is what I'm going to do in your life, and I'm like, well, God, that's great, but I'm here, and that promise is three kilometers down the road. That way, how are we ever going to get there? In moments of trial or struggle, I find that it's easy to forget and to, to doubt this promise. And, and it's not that I don't believe it. It's that it's hard to believe in your heart when bad things happen. But as difficult as this promise is to, to believe in your heart, the really cool thing with this promise is, is not the words that are spoken, but it's the truth behind it. It's not a promise that God gives lightly that he just says it and then that's it. It's not empty words. But I've experienced in my life that every time I've been faithfully following God and trusting God, it doesn't matter what I feel I lack, I always have enough. And that's not to say that I haven't gone off and done my own thing and then God's been like, well, enjoy I'm not going to provide for you as you go off and do that because I told you not to do that. Like, that's not to say that hasn't happened, but when I've trusted God, he's always provided me with enough. You will always have enough. That's not to say you're going to have a million dollars in the bank account. That would be nice, but it's not to say that's going to happen. But God will provide you with everything you need. You will always have enough. That's not to say that your life will be perfect and you'll have no problems and you, everything will just be sunshine and rainbows for the rest of your days, but it doesn't matter what happens to you. God will give you everything you need. You'll always have enough. It's not to say you will feel like you have enough. You'll feel like you are enough because, let's be real, there are days, I'm sure all of us experience this, where we feel deficient feel not good enough. We feel like we lack the skill to do what God has called us to do or the resources to do what God has called us to do or we lack something that we think we need but the promise is despite what you might lack, God knows what he put in you and it is enough. You will always have enough. Let me prove it to you. First Timothy 6. In this chapter, we see Paul is writing to his young protege, uh, Timothy. And Paul had um, planted this church or built up this church in Corinth, and after he left them, he put Timothy in charge. And, and, and he, we find that he writes these two letters to Timothy to 
encourage Timothy in his journey and also to give him some tips and tricks and advice as Timothy is this young pastor leading a church for the first time. And and in this chapter in 1 Timothy 6, Paul is specifically addressing a problem in the church, which is that there were people in the church, apparently numerous enough that Paul knew about it, but people in the church who loved money more than they loved God. And it's from this chapter that we get one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Um, and it, Because a few verses earlier from this, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For in their pursuit of it, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And a lot of times pastors preach it as, Money is evil! And it's like, no, that's not exactly what it says. It says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, meaning that loving money more than God, it's a form of idolatry, is going to cause problems. But from this passage, from this context, Paul writes this, and he says, as for those who in this present age are rich, command them to give up all their money and to be poor. No, that's not what it says. It's just interesting because, you know, the church for a long time has been like, give up all your money. You can't be rich and be, follow God. No, no, no. It's command them not to be haughty. Command them not to be stuck up and think, oh, I've got money, so I'm better than you who don't have money. It says, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything so we might survive. Everything so we might not just die tomorrow. No, no. Richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I don't know about you, but I like that. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's not about just surviving. He wants to provide for us. He wants to give us what we need to enjoy. But you know, you might be thinking, oh, well, that's great, Paul. Clearly, you're rich, Paul, so it's easy for you to say when you have money, Paul. But it's interesting looking at the life of Paul and kind of seeing his situation. Because Paul is the same guy who, in, in Philippians 4, writes the, one of the other verses that we like to misquote, and he says, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty, the context being finances, or more specifically, food, clothing, and money. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. What's the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we like to take that last part out of context and say, as you're, you know, down by four in a football game, you have to go 95 yards in four seconds in order to win the game. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's great. I'm not going to say it's not true, but that's not what the verse says. The context of this verse specifically is finances, provision, supplies. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He'll give me all I need. 
And I really like this context because Paul is in this moment, he's telling us, I have gone through periods where I've had everything I need and where I've not been able to eat. Or I've had plenty of resources and where I've had absolutely nothing. He's like, but the thing is, it doesn't matter what I lack. My lack doesn't matter. My problems don't matter. My provision doesn't matter because I know the provider. He says, it doesn't matter what I might lack. It doesn't matter if I have money or I have clothing or I have food or if people like me or if people hate me or, or, or it doesn't matter if I'm skilled or not because I know my provider. I know my source. God is my source. God, the provider, Jehovah Jireh is my source. I can do all things through him who strengthens me because I know when I'm following God. He will provide me with everything I need for my enjoyment. I will always have enough. But you know, the struggle, at least what I find is the struggle, is that worry is easier than faith. You know, it's easier, our, our culture is really in, in, engulfed in, in this idea of worrying about things we have no control over, but it's easier, I find, to worry about things I can't control than it is to have faith in the God who is in control of everything. You know, it's easier to foc on, focus on what I lack than on the God who supplies. It's easier to focus on the child who's sick in the hospital than on the God who heals. It's easier to focus on the money I don't have than on the God who literally says, hey, my streets are paved with gold. It's easier to focus on the deficiency or the lack than it is to focus on the one who has everything we need. And really what makes it especially difficult is that in following God, there will be moments where we experience opposition. Moments where we have problems in our life that cause us to doubt what God is doing in our life. You know, looking at the life of Paul, Paul is somebody who, who the church really tends to love and, and celebrate. And Paul was this, this apostle, this, this teacher, this pastor who, who lived shortly after Jesus, and, and he, he went around as a missionary and founded all these churches and built all of these, the, these churches up and brought so many people to faith in Christ. And, and we love the story of Paul because he has a great resume. But the life of Paul was one that really was defined by opposition. No, it all started when Paul was not called Paul. His name was Saul at first, and, and he was a Jew who his job literally was to go around and kill Christians. Like, what a horrible type of job you're getting paid to find people and kill them because you disagree with their beliefs. And, and Paul is going about doing his business. He's on his way to a city called Damascus, and on the way, Jesus appears to him, blinds him, and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Paul is brought blind into the city of Damascus, and a guy named Ananias comes, and he heals his blindness. He reveals Jesus to him, and from that moment on, Paul becomes Christian and begins to service or serve Jesus, but, you know, right at that moment was when the first opposition came. Because the Jews in the city of Damascus realized, oh, Paul's no longer on our side. And so they decided, well, the city's wall has walls around it. There's only a few gates. So we're just going to wait outside all of the gates until he comes through, and we're just going to kill him. And right off the bat, Paul begins to serve Jesus, and immediately people are like, yeah, we're going to take you out, Paul. That's great. And so the believers, they lower him uh, in a basket over the wall so he's able to escape and make his way. Um, and, and so there's opposition. And really, the story doesn't end there. If you want to read the whole story, re- read the book of Acts. But, but we see from then on, Paul then, he, he tries to go and meet up with other Christians, and they're like, whoa, dude, you were just trying to kill us last week. Like, no, we're not talking to you. And finally, when they get comfortable around him, then, then, then he's starting to be like, this is what God revealed to me. And they're like, yeah, I don't think that's right. And they have all these debates, all these arguments, all everything going on. And, and then Paul, he's doing his whole missionary thing. He's traveling with this group of guys. Some of them disagree with him, so half the group leaves him and, and abandons him. And, and, and later on in his life, we see Paul then is, is actually arrested simply for being a Christian. And the Jews are trying to kill him, and so the Romans come in, and then they arrest him, and then they're like, what do we do with him? And he's kept in house arrest illegally for several years just for being Christian. And all, is that, all that is, is to say that, that Paul faced opposition, like we all do. Because, you know, the reality is that in being a servant of God and following God, we will always face opposition, especially from people who don't understand why we do what we do. You'll always face opposition from people who don't get, why, why, do, we, why do you give 10% of your money to God? Well, it's because I trust God over money, but why? won't get why people give of their time to serve in charities and churches to help people in need. People don't get why we disagree with society on, on hot-button issues because the society says one thing and the Bible says another, and we're like, well, we're going to side with the Bible. People don't get that. And often, misunderstandings like that breed opposition. But, you know, the opposition that I find most difficult to deal with is not the stuff that's external. Because people who don't know me, they can criticize me. I don't really care, I'll be honest. Um, But it's when people inside, people who I know and trust, or my own mind begins to criticize me, that's when I find it difficult. It's like the friends that you trusted suddenly turn around and stab you in the back. Your own mind, you're, you're trying to follow God, and your brain's like, well, I don't think that's possible. Are you skilled enough for that? Those are the things that are, that are difficult to deal with. So Paul, he faced, we see, external conflict, external opposition. But we also see, laced throughout all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, that he faced internal 
opposition as well. None more than from this handy little church in a city called Corinth. And if I were to sum up the church in Corinth in a couple words, it would be either they were extremely messed up or Paul really loved them because the church in Corinth was one that we know from from the Bible, Paul spent a year and a half with them. And when you're a traveling pastor, that's that's a long time. It's like, oh, there's all these other people who need me. I'm going to stay around with you for a year and a half. You must have really loved them, or they were really messed up. And we know as well that Paul wrote not one, not two, not three, but four separate letters to them, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Timothy as well, to this church in Corinth to support them. And this was a church that Paul had poured his blood, sweat, and tears into. But what we see kind of behind the scenes in, in the letters that he wrote them was this opposition that he was constantly facing. And it starts right off at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to skip that. If we can throw up 1 Corinthians 4, though, this is the most apparent first opposition we see. Or Paul, he's talking about, I, I had to go so I can minister to other people, but I sent Timothy, listen to him because he knows what I'm saying. And he says this, but some of you, thinking I am not coming to you, have become arrogant. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. I don't know if you think the same way as me, but I just, I read that and I'm like, ooh, fighting words. Paul's like, let's take you out. But we see behind the scenes what's kind of going on in the background as Paul had told the church in Corinth, I'm going to come back. As soon as I can, I'm going to come back. But apparently now that he's gone, there's people in the church who are like, yeah, well, Paul says one thing and does another. So he's not really going to come back to us. And Paul's like, really? Are you going to talk bad about me? Okay, well, that's fine. When I come back, I'm going to find out if you are as powerful as I am. Because your words mean nothing. But then it carries on. First Corinthians, I believe it's nine. It says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. You know, you don't write a defense unless you've been accused of something. It says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And we see, we know from the context of of Corinth that Corinth was a popular city in, in the Greek world where a lot of philosophers, Greek philosophers and scholars would go, and they had this expectation of traveling scholars, that when they came into their city, they would be good speakers, good orators, and most importantly, they would eat certain things, drink certain things, they would be single, and they would accept donations from the rich people in Corinth who liked them. And Paul, well, he's a hard worker. He's a tent maker. 
And as he's in Corinth, he's, we, we know that he's been turning down their donations because part of accepting donations in Corinth meant that the wealthy patrons who were paying you money could control your message. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to earn my own money. And they're like, how dare you, Paul? How dare you turn down our money? How dare you eat the food that we don't want you to eat? How dare you work with your hands? How dare you earn your own money? How dare you travel and do all these things? How dare you, Paul? It's like, this is my defense. Do we not have the right to do this? But it carries on, 2 Corinthians 3. It says, does this sound as if we are again boasting about ourselves? Could it be that like some other people, we need letters of recommendation to you and from you? This is interesting because remember, Paul has been with the church in Corinth a year and six months. This is his second letter to this church. And he's like, do I need a letter of recommendation just to write you? Just for you to listen to me? He's like, we say this because we have confidence in God through Christ. There is nothing in us that allows us to claim that we are capable of doing this work. The capacity we have comes from God. It is he who made us capable of serving the new covenant. And Paul really is saying, kind of feels out of place in this chapter, but in the context of overall the conflict that's happening in this church, Paul is saying, hey guys, I don't need a letter of recommendation for you, from you. I don't need you to say, oh yeah, Paul, he's a good guy, he's qualified. I don't need humans to tell me that I'm good enough to do this because God told me I am. My authority in preaching this gospel to you does not come from you. It comes from God. But really this conflict comes to a head in in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Or Paul says, I think that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. I want to pause there for a second because I, I just love that term, super apostles. You know, an apostle back in those days was, was, it was a term that was coined or used by the Roman Empire when they conquered an area. They'd send in ships of people from Rome And the leader of those people was called an apostle. And the purpose was they were supposed to go into this land that had been conquered and spread the culture of Rome to that land. And the church used that term as well. And an apostle in the church was somebody who brought the kingdom of heaven into different places, who spread God's kingdom in the world. And Paul is saying, am I, not, uh, the, uh, am I not in the least inferior to these super apostles? And that's interesting because an apostle, that's like the top, leader, or top leadership of the church. It's kind of like a CEO in a company. And apparently the church in Corinth is like, oh, Paul, you're an apostle? They're super apostles. It's like, oh, you're a CEO? I'm a super CEO. Just making up titles not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even if I am untrained in speech, this is where we see what's going on. Even if I'm untrained in speech, they didn't think he could speak very well. I certainly am not with respect to knowledge. Certainly in every and in all things we have made this evident to you. Did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I proclaimed God's good news to you free of charge? 
I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for my needs were supplied by the brothers who came from Macedonia. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. Indeed, you should have been the ones commending me for I am not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And we see that Paul in this church that he had built up, that he had spent time with, that he had trained them, he had brought someone in to lead them, he had poured his blood, sweat, and tears into this church. And after he had left, he had been praying for them, supporting them, reaching out to them, trying to help them however he could. He was trying to make his way back there. And Paul, in the midst of this, he's being told by this church, yeah, you're not good enough. That's great, Paul. I'm glad that you helped us, but you're not good enough for us. Because you're not that good of a speaker, Paul. You're not that good of a leader, Paul. You're inferior to these other guys who came in after you. They're, they're much better than you, Paul. It's like, think it in your head. Don't say it to his face. But, Paul, you're, 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 good job, Paul. But you're not good enough for us. See, Paul addressing this over and over and over and over and over and over and over in his letters, but but from this context comes this beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 12. It says, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. And, and pastors and preachers like to elaborate on what the thorn might have been. And some people are like, oh, it was an addiction. Okay, sure, whatever. Um, or, or others are like, oh, it was a like, mental health problem or a health problem or something like that. And I think based on the context, we don't know what it was, but I think based on the context of chapter 11 and, and, and later on in chapter 12, that it was likely Paul's skill with speaking. He wasn't that good of a speaker. But he says, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's saying, I, there's something I struggle with something I struggle with, something that makes me feel inferior, that makes me feel broken, that's keeping me down. There's something that's going on in the background. He's like, I prayed to God three times, take it away. But God said to me, my power is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. You might think that I'm not good enough for your church. You might think that I'm not a good enough speaker. You might think that I'm inferior to all these other people. You might not support me. But that doesn't matter. 
Because when I am weak, that's when God's power works through me. And Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what I might lack. It doesn't matter what I might lack. It doesn't matter what opposition I might face, whether it's external or internal. It doesn't matter if I'm struggling or I'm not good enough at something. None of that matters. Because I am following God, and when I am following God, He will provide me with everything I need. When in my weakness, He is strong. You might say I'm not good enough, but that's fine. Because God is my provider. And even when I feel deficient, even when I don't have enough, even when I lack food and clothing and everything else, even when I lack support from people who should be supporting me, even in my weaknesses, God is with me. And I will always have enough. Or to quote Jesus in Matthew 6, it says, therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. It is the people who are not a part of God's house who strive for these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You don't need to worry about food, clothing, provision, what you lack. Jesus is saying, seek me. Seek my kingdom first. And everything you need will be given to you. Or to put it another way, a long time ago, I heard somebody say this, and it's stuck with me. I have no idea who the original source was, but I heard somebody say, God never calls the equipped. He equips the called, which is to say that it doesn't matter what might, you might lack because he is your provider. When he has called you to do something, he will provide you with everything you need to do it as long as you are pursuing his will. You will always have enough. It doesn't matter if your teacher told you that you weren't good enough. God says, I know what I put in you, and it is enough doesn't matter if you keep getting passed over for that promotion and you feel deficient, you feel not good enough for the job you're in. God said, I know what I put in you and it is enough. It doesn't matter if in your pursuit of God, he, he calls you to start a business and, and it gets difficult and, and you're like, I don't have the funds, I don't have the people, I don't have the support. God's like, I, I am with you. I will make sure you have enough. It doesn't matter if you might struggle with health problem, 
mental health issue, anxiety, depression, fear, suicidal thoughts. It doesn't matter. None of those things matter because God says, I see you. I made you the way you are for a reason, and I've called you to do something that only you can do. You might feel like you lack what you need, but you have enough. If you need more, I will give you everything you need, but you might go into situations where you feel you don't have enough, and that's okay, because as long as you're following me, you will have enough. always have enough. You're following God, pursuing His will, you will always have enough. If I can get everyone to stand now, we're going to close in a moment. As we stand, I want to invite the prayer team to come forward as well. You know, part of the, the ethos of our church is that we believe that God is a God who heals and that an encounter with God changes lives. And, and so once a month we try to do a, a healing service where really the focus is just allowing people in need of prayer to get prayer and allowing God to do what only God can do. And you know, through this church we've seen so many people get healed. We've seen cancer just disappear. We've seen pain in, in like knees and backs and necks just disappear through the power of God. It's, it's things that we can't do on our own that, that God does through us on our behalf. So just as we close, in a moment I'm going to pray and then after we're going to go into one last song of worship. But as we close, I want to give everyone here the opportunity to get prayer. If you are in need of anything, if your lack is because of a health issue, a mental health issue, you're just lacking provision, you're lacking skill, you're lacking insight or wisdom, whatever you might feel your lack is, we believe that God is the provider. That God wants to heal and he wants to reveal to you, it doesn't matter what you lack. I can give you everything you need. So in a moment, I want to pray. And then afterwards, I want to invite anyone, if you are here this morning, and you are struggling with a lack, you're struggling with a deficiency, whether it's mental or physical or just psychological, whatever it might be, I want to invite you to come down and get healing. Because God will always provide you with what you need, but I believe that sometimes God does that through other people. Sometimes the breakthrough you're looking for is just on the other side of obedience. So Father God, I just, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of provision. You thank you that when Israel was wandering through a wilderness, lacking food, you sent them food. We thank you that when we feel deficient, 
you can supply us with everything we need. We thank you that you don't call us to things and then abandon us there, but that you provide us with everything we need. And if you haven't provided it to us, then we don't need it yet. God, I just pray over each and every person in this room who's struggling with a lack, who's struggling with a deficiency, who's struggling with not feeling good enough, struggling with a physical issue, a mental issue, suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, who's struggling with pain and lies that have been told them all their lives of how they're not good enough. God, I just pray that you will break those chains. God, use us. Work in our midst. Work through us, God. We thank you that you are the healer and you are the provider. And that nothing can limit your power working in our lives but ourselves. God, I pray for anyone here who is feeling the urge to come forward but is too scared. Give them the courage to step forward. Pray this in your name. Amen, amen. just want to invite anyone in need of healing or provision to come forward.